0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey there and welcome back everybody. Now today we're going to be wrapping up the second in a two-part interview that I've been looking forward to doing for a really long time. Now, if you missed the first part of this interview, then I really recommend that you go back and listen to it before this second half in order to get the proper context. Now, as a quick recap, I've been speaking with conventional and industrial farmers for some time, not only to get a better understanding of the industry and the management practices that they use, but also to understand the people who manage these farms, the decisions and the challenges that they face and both the differences and commonalities that they have with the regenerative farmers that I speak to more regularly. Now in an effort to raise awareness of these issues and to introduce some perspective into the conversation that is going on now around the world about how we should produce food and manage the natural world that we've come to dominate, I reached out to a voice that I've been following for a number of months and that I believe represents very honestly the realities of modern industrial farming operations in North America. Jake Legwee is managing over 15,000 acres near Weyburn in southern Saskatchewan in Canada. He grows durum, wheat, canola, peas, lentils, and flax, and farms with his family, including his wife and three young sons, and several other family members. Together, they are a third-generation farm that strives to continually improve in order to leave things better than they found them. Jake is also involved in various places in the agriculture industry as well. As a farmer and an agronomist, agriculture and the science and the business therein is his fascination and passion. Back in the first half of this interview, we covered Jake's family's history into farming and how he's overseen some of the major transformations in how the land and the business are managed since taking over the farm business a number of years ago. We also unpack some of the points of friction that farmers like Jake have experienced when dealing with legislators and regulators in Canada as well as how this is often representative of many other countries around the world. We wrapped up on a note about the importance of including farmers directly in this discussion at the government level whenever decisions are being made that would affect their work and the farming sector in general. In this second part, we're gonna be exploring further some of the misunderstandings that Jake has observed about how the general public understands modern farming, the pressures that the farm owners like him are under and even how these misunderstandings can be overcome. We also talk about some of the more controversial management practices that modern farmers engage in and why Jake defends the use of certain crop protection chemicals, GMO crops, and the use of synthetic fertilizers, among other issues. Now, just as a quick reminder, my aim in giving voice to these positions is not to advocate for them or to defend them, but rather to share the perspective and the reality of the farmers that those of us in the regenerative fields often villainize or try to distance ourselves from. I really believe that it's essential to understand their positions and to look for common ground rather than trying to convince others of our ways of seeing things all the time. I also believe that Jake does an admirable job of bringing thoughtfulness and compassionate advocacy to his way of life and farming. And I hope that this will open up a larger discussion on how we can better include and welcome conventional farmers into the regenerative transformation of the farm and food industries that many of us are hoping to advance. And so let's jump back into where we left off last week. And I'll hand things over now to Jake Legui.
1: So I get frustrated by people who who come in and say, you guys are doing this wrong, that wrong, and this other thing, and this is the way you need to do it, when they haven't had that experience. Now, that's not to say that you can't have an opinion about something without living it. That's certainly not the case. We all have opinions about piles of things that we don't, you know, have any personal experience with, and a lot of cases don't know that much about. I'm guilty of it too. But if we're going to have discussions at the policy level about these types of things, these types of rules, these types of regulations, there down well better be farmers involved with those conversations. That's where I'm coming from with a lot of what I'm saying. Farmers should be involved all the way through to the policy that's made at the highest level of government to make these sorts of decisions because we understand our soils better than anyone.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with that last part. So I'm actually involved with a company here called Climate Farmers and one of our biggest efforts right now is to bring more and more farmers directly into the conversations happening at policy levels, especially at a time of so much change. And we just got finished actually uh, just over a week ago doing a conference with over 50% farmers there represented about you know what sort of agenda we would like to see and how we would like to uh, get support from the level of the European Commission. and yeah, I, I think you know you can't have a good conversation about how to affect an industry, especially one so vital as agriculture, without bringing in the voices of the people who depend on this to support their families, much like you said, and who have the most knowledge about what the challenges are on the ground. That being said, I also have to play a little bit of devil's advocate here too, because, you know there are legitimate concerns of the products and the the chemicals that are being used in massive production right now. And though 2030 does seem very short, and it is, let's face it, an arbitrary number that's mostly based on climate projections and pledges that have been made at governmental levels without consulting with people on farms. Um, the challenges are also very urgent, right? Uh, whether or not we have the exact data on you know, the effects of nitrogen per farm or how it's being applied and, you know, where it's going, we have dead spots in the ocean due to eutrophication from downstream runoff from these chemicals. And though there are better products that show fewer side effects in the environment compared to, you know, other herbicides, pesticides and such, there is no way to be 100% sure that these aren't going to have uh, long-term effects and that could start to move through trophic levels of the, the food web and start maybe not to affect the immediate, uh, you know, lower parts like, like bugs and protozoa and microbes and fungi that are coming directly in contact with them. But as they rise up through, you know, different levels of herbivores and carnivores and start to bioaccumulate, we might not see massive die offs in a much delayed way the way we have seen with previous products that were deemed safe in the beginning. And I'm sure you sympathize with those types of concerns because it, it takes a long time to get that kind of data. And there's no way of being entirely sure when we use these on the ground that they're not going to massively affect generations to come. Um, Is it just a matter of trying to use the best products available and and continue to innovate and make better ones? Or do you think that there is a role for, you know, maybe government or maybe uh, industry associations or, you know, whoever it might be to put some limits on this as well? Because it shouldn't just be a race to whoever has the cheapest product that saves my business this season gets to dictate how this affects the environment over a long period of time. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I can't speak to how regulations are put in place in other countries because um, I'm not an expert in them. And, and certainly, you know, there, there are places in the world where, you know, agriculture isn't being operated as well as it could be. You know, there, there are soil erosion problems from too much tillage, and there are issues with nutrient runoff as a result of that. Here in Western Canada, my experience here is what I can speak to the best. And that's what I'll speak to. You know, we haven't, basically we've eliminated tillage in Western Canada. We eliminated it 30 years ago. We're a dry climate, right? So what we need to do is get uh, seeds into moisture and get them germinated and get them growing as quickly as we can, because we can run out of moisture at any given time. So, um, that allowed us to move away from tillage much faster than a lot of other places can that have quadruple the rainfall like the Midwest does compared to us. So, you know, I got to throw that caveat out there that soil erosion risk is a big problem in a lot of places. As far as the best way to deal with that, that's a, that's it's a, maybe a, a different question from I think where, where I would answer this, at least in Canada. We already have a lot of regulations around pesticide use and residue limits. So, and and that's worldwide. Um, there there's something called maximum residue limits. So the way they come up with those, um, you probably already know this, but I'll just mention it for the sake of, of your audience. That, you know, they they take the lethal dose for fifty percent of a population of rats, basically, right? And and then they divide that by about a thousand to make sure that it is one hundred percent safe. So to the point where, oh man, I've heard some of these analogies and it's hard to remember them. But it's like it's like a tablet of Advil in a in a rail car full of water is how much Advil you'd be consuming if you drank the whole thing, right? Like that's that's the residue limits that we're talking about of our products. So it's extremely small. And it's really rare for us to go over those residue limits. It's tested all the time when our products go to overseas markets. So we already are regulated in the sense that the uh, the pesticides that we're using aren't allowed to go over a certain level in the food products that we produce. And a lot of those maximum residue limits continue to be pulled lower and lower and lower, which has its problems because when you start to search for something that's literally zero, you're always going to find something when you can find parts per billion even though it's not meaningful. The dose makes the poison, right? You can take an Advil and it helps your headache. If you down the whole bottle of it, well, it's probably not going to turn out that well for you. It's the same thing with the products that we're using. Now, as far as bioaccumulation in the environment and everything else, I mean, there, there were some issues with that to be sure, especially back in the 60s and 70s when a lot of these products that we're using today were new um, they were very volatile. I mean, you sprayed 240 in those days, and you'd smell it in the air for a couple of days afterwards, right? Today, those products are so much better; they just don't do that anymore. Um, so, technology has really helped to improve that situation. And it's also worth remembering. I mean, so we've we've been growing genetically modified varieties of corn, soybeans, canola, uh, and a few others here for what thirty about thirty years now. There's been literally billions of meals eaten from those, pro- from those products and the herbicides that, that they're made for, right? I mean, a, uh, a genetically modified canola variety that we have today, which is all of our canola, basically, all that they did was they just made it tolerant to a specific herbicide, right? They didn't go and change a whole bunch of other things about it. They just made it tolerant to a specific herbicide because without it, we couldn't grow the damn stuff weeds would just outcompete it and then we'd be stuck using herbicides that are way harsher on the environment than than glyphosate is so i would say part of the answer to that is we've been doing this for a long long time already and we aren't seeing those effects you know i am on the the board for the Saskatchewan wheat development commission and and we fund research in crop breeding and agronomy but also in all kinds of stuff and i, I see research proposals on we should study you know, the impact of this product on these types of soil microorganisms. Those studies have been done for a long time and they continue to be. And over and over and over again, we find that, well, there is ultra basically, there wasn't really anything, right? No statistical significance. So I'm not saying that we are problem free and we're perfect and we've got it all figured out because we certainly haven't. There's a lot of improvements that we can make as farmers in agriculture, especially in, in a lot of places in the world where, um, You know it's practiced very intensively with a lot of rainfall it's it is challenging farming in those environments so there do need to be some regulations around it i'm not against regulation it just needs to be done well and in a lot of cases regulation just brings so many unintended consequences with it that that you just can't foresee right it kind of comes back to that unknown unknowns thing again you don't know what you don't know and when governments make regulation there's so many things they don't know that they don't know, so we have to be careful when we make them. I would say. So I don't know. Does, does that answer your question, or? No, it, does, it definitely
0: me... gives me an insight into the perspective uh, and and the way that you know people in your position think about this as well. Um, I mean, I've seen agriculture practiced in many different ways in many different parts of the world, and it is so context specific. Um, you know, you represent a very, very small portion of the population of farmers. And so I I just wanna give this as a perspective for people who misunderstand what type of agriculture this is and who oppose it on principle without understanding what people do on a daily basis and how they see the changes that are happening all the time from both the environment and from legislative side to say nothing about the volatility in the industry. Um, But I think it is a really valuable perspective too. Um maybe that's even something we can talk about because we've kind of gone from you know challenges in the environment and then the governmental level but the industry itself uh, is changing all the time. I'm wondering where you see challenges from that side in your business and where you would like to see you know ch- changes that could make it easier for people in your position.
1: Well I mean here in Canada one of the biggest issues that we deal with is that we're a long way away from the ocean, right? We we produce you know what is it, 80 million tons of grain here in Western Canada, depending on the year, 60 to 80. Um, We'll probably be at 100 million tons here in another 10 years or less. We got to get those products to port, right? Our railways have to carry those products. There's no other way to get them there. And our railways are continually being utilized, hauling oil, hauling products that should be moved by pipeline rather than by train we're continually seeing interference with products that shouldn't have to go by rail and also by people who live on the coast that don't like those great big harbors you know outside their living room window they don't like all those ships out in the ocean not that far from their house on the coast of vancouver they don't like that the trains come through the city they don't like all that noise and and all that stuff going on and they forget that that is the hub of most of canada's business they forget that that's what actually produces the income that allows them to live where they live in the first place so we're seeing this this sort of work we're stepping on our own feet constantly trying to regulate all business out of anywhere that we're living because we don't like it around us but yet we depend on it to survive we're doing that with agriculture we're doing that with oil and natural gas and all sorts of other call them natural resource production that we just don't like to see anymore but the fact is we need it and we're going to need it for a long time and I, and i i think what people need to remember is that we've got this this utopia that we're looking towards where everything's going to be green and we're going to be net zero and everything we still have to get from here to there and there's a lot of poor people in the world who all they want Like, I know smallholder farmers in Africa. I've met them before through an organization I work with called the Global Farmer Network. They want what we have. They don't want to be smallholder farmers. They want to farm bigger operations and have access to fertilizers and chemicals and, you know, large-scale equipment so that they don't have to go out there with a backpack sprayer spraying a product that's 40 years old because the new one just isn't getting approved. Because a genetically modified variety that would allow the plant to prevent that insect from doing any damage to it and avoid the use of herbicide, they can't get that approved because people are scared of it. Because we have non-governmental organizations scaring the pants off of people about these products, and it's literally killing people. We have children with vitamin A deficiency in Africa that could have been solved 20 years ago through a variety called Golden Rice fortified with vitamin A. It could have cured blindness in those children for the last 20 years and it's been opposed because it's genetically modified variety. It's being given away for free at this point and people still don't want to use it because of fear. So we've got to get out of our own way on a lot of this stuff. We uh so many of us have subscribed to the precautionary principle and that basically anything that could damage something we shouldn't do. But life is risk. Everything we do in our lives is risky. We drive down the highway. If we, if we applied the same rules to using our roadways, we'd all be driving five miles an hour because, well, you'll never get in a serious accident going that speed. But we'd have zero productive value out of all those people that are doing that. So we have to balance risk and reward, and that's where I think government policy in agriculture and other businesses needs to reflect what real life is, and that's risk. We need balance the risk of something going wrong with the need for you know progress in all sorts of ways. So those I, I feel like that's sort of like the big overarching challenge here is that we've forgotten that risk is to be managed, not eliminated. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: It does. And this is why I was so excited to talk to you, because I can see so many similarities with the the way that both you and I look at some of the problems that we face, despite the fact that we may come to different conclusions about how that might, you know, roll out or, or what we should do about it. Um, I, I completely understand that, you know, once you take certain steps towards productivity or to solving certain problems through technology, that these are the logical conclusions that need to come up. Um, but I also question too whether the necessity for a genetically modified grain that is probably competing both on price and well, the genetics are pushing out the, I don't want to say like uh, heritage varieties because that could mean anything, but the indigenous foods of that area, which were unquestionably more nutrient-dense and that have due to the requirements of a massive agri-food industry pushed out their competitive edge and made them inaccessible to the people of that region, are doing a poor job of surrogating the nutritional density of the foods that it overtook. You know what I mean? So it's like, where do you start with that? As the economy and the way of doing business of these regions is adapted to a modern technological way, that removes their access to the indigenous foods that they've relied on and that have sustained them for so long, then comes with a slightly more nutrient fortified, genetically modified version. And, you know, they should then just accept that as a replacement for what they used to have is what starts to, to, you know, pang in my heart. And I know is what comes up for a lot of people, too, when this is billed as the solution.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you you don't want to go in there and say that we've got this great solution for you. Give up all your other stuff and buy this instead. Right. I think what you want to do yes, is that's what the...
0: has happened so many times. That's how we've yeah. gotten to the point where we are. Right. And, you know, I I really do agree with your perspective on so many of these things, but it just, to me, it catches up with the idea that like, Every time we take a step further in this direction, we then have to accept the solutions that, that you're proposing. And of course, they make sense. Uh, they, they are locked step with the progression, with the developments that has been put on the world from an economic perspective for so long. And I guess the fundamental question is, is this the progress that we ultimately want? Is, is you know, turning farmers into technicians and rep- I guess, putting nutrition through genetically modified crops back into missing foodstuffs that were replaced by this industry, really progress. I guess, you know, I'm. this is coming from me specifically, but I know that there's a lot of people who, who question this from this perspective as well.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a tough problem, because especially in Africa, you have such a logistical problem about how to deal with, how to get them better varieties in general, whether it's genetically modified, whether it's through traditional crop breeding or anything else. I, I There's one farmer I know in South Africa, and uh, I met him a few years ago to, at a conference, the Global Farmer Network. And the level of frustration that he had at that time about what he wasn't allowed to use was very mm-hmm. striking to me. He should have the choice. He should be able to choose. it's his farm, it's his life, right? I mean, for a lot of the, for for us, you know here in Western Canada and in a lot of more developed countries, taking choices away from us it it limits our ability to be profitable, but it doesn't necessarily um, directly threaten our survival. but for them it does. They really are on that edge, right They're living in extreme poverty, a lot of them. For sure. And, and to say to them that we know better than you do, right? You shouldn't have access to this because we don't want you making the same mistakes that we did. That doesn't seem very fair. They should have the choice to make that decision for themselves. And yeah, they may choose something that we don't like, but what right do we have to tell them that they can't have it? That's, that's where, that's where I have a problem with a lot of this stuff is, you know, if I'm a farmer in South Africa, and I have children that are literally going blind because of vitamin A deficiency, and this isn't a new thing, right? This isn't because of of uh, products they're buying in the marketplace that don't have the right nutrients. This is stuff they're producing on their own farms, that probably their soils are so exhausted from year, well, centuries of agricultural production on those fields with no fertilizer. There's nothing left in those soils. They need fertilizers, and they need them badly. The best thing that those we could do for those people would be to just give them the choice, and let them decide for themselves. I don't think it's right to uh, to do anything else.
0: I I really do get that. Um, where I would go with that then is kind of down a whole new route of conversation here, which is how you see and. Understand the different options that exist. Because right now it seems like what we're talking about limiting their options on are what chemicals they can use as fertilizers or, or crop uh, uh, protection, uh, pesticides, fertilizer, herbicides, and the like. Yet there are other options, right? And we talked about these things not being absolutely essential, even if they may decrease yields. But increasingly, With new science that's coming out and revisitation of indigenous land care methods, uh, how people used to produce crops without these things a long time ago, because it wasn't this bleak uh, system of, you know, toil and labor and, you know, increasingly diminishing land fertility. There were ways of maintaining the fertility on land that reduced the amount of labor that had to happen. And. I mean, if you think about it, too, if you are living in a place that is still fairly connected with the traditions, the holidays, the celebrations and festivals from from a long time ago, you start to realize just how many days even agricultural societies used to take off. Uh, There's like where I'm here in Spain that still has a lot of this in their calendar. There is a holiday like every other week. And there's some Anasanta and there's all these other things. And depending on which region you're in, like, they're very specific to things that follow the the patterns of the, the earth, of the, the harvest, of the planting and all of these other things. So it's not like it's only one bleak picture. I mean, without romanticizing the past, there are multiple stories about how this looked and it looked different in different regions. What I'm saying is there are increasingly options for ways of managing the health of a landscape in a much more holistic sense that can improve the fertility even through production methods that are starting to gain in popularity that are starting to be proven by scientific papers even though let's face it those are always a couple years behind of what's actually happening on the field i'm wondering how you feel about or how much you know about these different uh, options and if they should be included in what is offered to people who it seems like are mostly just making small decisions about what additives to buy.
1: Yeah, well, it gets the more, uh, the the deeper you dig in a lot of this stuff, the more complicated it gets because, you know, you mentioned a while ago how um, agriculture is so specific to different locations, eh? Like, you know, even in our, I, I often say that Our farm is totally different from a farm 10 miles away, and it's not necessarily because our soil is that much different. In some cases, it is that much different. But sometimes it's just generational changes. Like the guy down the road might be a first generation farm and we're and say we're a fifth. That changes everything about how you approach risk, how you approach your crop production and everything else. It takes generations to pay for land. So, you know, the hyperlocality of agriculture, I think, does need to be really a really well understood and that what works here doesn't work there. And I need to be careful, too, that I don't come across saying that I know what's best for African farmers, because I sure as hell don't. Um, and I also think that, uh, you know, there there are practices that we've probably lost over the years in all sorts of industries, as well as agriculture, that might have worked pretty well. Um, one thing I was thinking about while you were saying that is, have you ever read the book The Alchemy of Air? I think it was by Thomas Hager. I haven't read that one, no. Well, it, it's an interesting read because he goes into basically the Haber Bosch process of of how we took nitrogen out of the air, how those two men came up with their ideas and solutions to that whole question. And uh in the first part of the book, he talks about sort of the way things were in the early 1900s to late 1800s in agriculture, and it wasn't pretty. I mean, they were. Uh, they were using manure as much as they could to fertilize their fields. They knew that they needed it at that point, right? They knew that it was important to provide those nutrients, but there just wasn't enough manure in the world to fertilize all their fields, right? So they ended up traveling to, uh, I think there's a mountain range in Argentina where there's a whole bunch of birds that just like to be on top of oh, those yeah, hills.
0: Like the Islands as yeah. Well, yeah.
1: Yeah. You yeah, want to I talk about, about a bad that, place anyway. to work? Holy man. Like, yeah. The, they Dust just threw the slaves toil. them
0: until they couldn't anymore.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, i uh, I think I would rather get my nitrogen from a manufacturing plant than than worry than hiring slaves to or hiring slaves to yeah. uh, to, to find some bird guano that eventually was running out anyway. So, yeah. You know, the, the nitrogen problem is one of the tougher ones in agriculture. There's no good solution to that. Maybe there will be. I mean. You know, on our farm this year, we tried a product that actually, uh, it. so maybe I should back up for a second. And our pulse crops like lentils and peas and alfalfa, chickpeas, there's a, there's a few of them, they all produce nitrogen out of the air. So what they do is they have these little bacteria that attach themselves to the root system. They pull nitrogen out of the air. They break it, right? The nitrogen in our atmosphere is very tightly bound, so it takes a lot of energy to break it. They break it down. They fix it meaning it's plant available, they give it to the plant and in return, they get carbon from the plant, right? So it's a symbiotic relationship. It works very well. The holy grail of plant breeding for the past century has been to get that process to work with crops like wheat and rice and corn, and it hasn't been successful. There might be starting to be some movement on that. Um, We used a product that we just sprayed on the plant and it, it was a bacteria and it goes right into the cells, and it actually fixes nitrogen out of the air. It's not a lot, like it's, you know, we're talking 15 to 30 pounds per acre of N, so it's not, a, it's not, I would say, a game changer yet, but it's coming. We may get there, and if that happens, we may almost eliminate the need for supplemental nitrogen fertilizer if it ever gets to that point. Now, that would be something that could really change the game, and that would be something that I would much rather see than saying you must reduce nitrogen fertilizer use because we're saving the environment, right? Some of those technologies, you know, there's a lot of potential coming there. As to whether that'll help smallholder farmers, I don't know, Um, probably, but so so much of the trouble there is corrupt governments and militias and and everything else that prevent farmers from having access to a lot of that stuff. So they're such complex problems. They are.
0: They are indeed. And I mean, look, there's always somewhere further you can go back into history and start to see the changes. I mean, goodness knows in Africa and the history of colonialism has largely dictated the way that these countries currently operate and the way that their economies have been affected and uh, extorted by by Western colonizing powers. And that's a whole bag of worms that I'm not about to open up. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is why it's so important, I think, to understand the stories and the progressions behind them, right? We didn't get here by accident. This is just a snapshot in a very long story that has got us up to this point. And, you know, you mentioned the, the Haber-Bosch process and how that has completely transformed agricultural output since that time. And post-World War II, with the industrialization and mechanization of uh, agriculture, at least in the United States, which then spread to so many other places, uh, which is often referred to as the Green Revolution, is really the, the basis of this. And the reason why there was such a reason to uh, come up with a solution for the nitrogen is, yeah, because these guano islands were starting to uh, diminish and not produce, and also because we had been on a collective progression of mechanized agriculture and tillage especially up until that point, without knowing anything about plant nutrition, at least not from a scientific perspective, that it was really looking for an excuse to uh, supersede the destruction that was happening and make it, you know, quote unquote, sustainable. And thank goodness we didn't just continue to throw slavery at the problem, but that we figured out some, some chemical solutions for it. But again, it to me goes back to a fundamental understanding about how we interact with our environment. Because what has happened since this Green Revolution is a massive uh, growth in world population. And as you pointed out in one of your articles, um, there are billions of people alive today that can in some way or another attribute their lives to the increase of agricultural production that came from these technological advances. Um, But then you have to get back to the question of, well, what is the primary goal of agriculture? It is, is it to sustain the largest possible human population on Earth? Or are there some other motivations behind that? How do you see that?
1: Well, I think that, you know, when we start talking about human population and, and agriculture and the relationship, when, when we start down the road of questioning whether we should be producing enough food for all the people in the world or, or whether we should have allowed our population to get so big. It leads you to some very dark places, uh, some very dark places that our, you know, I I won't even say our ancestors, like a generation or two removed from us, the things that were done, the things that are still being done. I mean, all you have to do is look to China and it's disastrous one child policy that, you know, forced sterilizations and abortions and, and even straight out killings of children on a massive scale. That was done not just in China. Um, And that was done because we apparently were terrified that we weren't going to produce enough food for a growing population. And, you know, I I just find that entire question to be a very scary one, Um, because what we're going to see in, in your lifetime and mine is a population in decline. At some point, we're not that far away from it now, we may be closer than we think. Our population will stop growing and it'll start declining. And once it starts declining, it will never stop. We will be seeing a, a very different world in our old age than what we've ever seen before. And I'm not sure that for the most part, it's a better one. We have the ability to feed everybody on the planet today, right now. Mostly it's a distribution problem. And a lot of it's a food waste problem. So, um, I don't think we need to worry too much about trying to uh, slow down agriculture, try to slow down population growth that's happening already, and in a lot of cases, it, it shouldn't have happened, and we're going to pay the consequences for it. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I I really don't have a, a vision into the future about whether eventual degrowth, depending on how it's managed, is going to be a bad or a good thing. I think. Depending on like what life form you are, it could be one or the other (laughs) significantly. Uh, And I really try and look at it from a wider perspective of the general health and the life caring capacity of the planet. And as we try and figure out our role as stewards of this planet, we're going to go through some growing pains of figuring out, okay, well, how much of our own population can be sustained without critically endangering all of the connections and the web of life that fundamentally supports us and that we may find a better balance perhaps at a lower population rate and perhaps at this population rate if more people were empowered to work actively as stewards of the land some as farmers some as you know uh, managers of other ways but i think at least the way that most people live right now considering we very recently crossed the threshold of over 50% of the world population living in cities is probably not the population that's gonna sustain itself at at these numbers, right? And that goes to a bit of what we were talking about, about the health of rural populations in the past and the cultures that have gone in decline because of that. Um, I think that there's a lot of potential through some new technologies that enable people to not necessarily have to be in cities, In order to do the work that they do through like telecommuting, uh, remote work and and others that I think hold some potential that would allow younger people, especially to start to move back to rural areas and find a life balance that has them as, you know, volunteers like you were doing and contributing actively to those communities while still being able to work in modern sectors and in technologically advanced uh, lines of work and you know, because we're talking about this difficult question about what the true purpose or goal of agriculture is, maybe on a more personal level, what do you see the ultimate goal of your farm being? Are you hoping to expand until you can, I don't know, support as many uh, incomes for your family and for others? or do you have a a more specific goal of where you would like to get to or, or perhaps already are at?
1: Yeah, so. I mean we've we've done some work on on strategic planning and that sort of thing and our vision is to create the opportunity for the fourth generation of this farm we didn't go deeper than that because i don't know what things are going to look like 20 years from today agriculture has changed so much it's it's hard to imagine um you know if if you'd have asked dad if you'd have told dad that he wasn't going to be driving equipment really that much anymore that it was basically driving itself and and we'd be producing as much as we are. I mean he he wouldn't have believed you, so uh, it's I, I don't want to get too far into trying to uh, base our strat plan around a future that I don't fully understand. But I would say that we do go deeper than that. you know our, our mission is to improve and enrich the lives of our families, our soils, our communities and the agriculture industry. right So what that means is we're leaving things better than we found them, whether that's our soils our community that we're a part of, our relationships, and also, I mean, our farm balance sheet, because a farm can't look after its soil if it's out of business. Those have to go together, and I think a lot of people forget that. There is a need for farms to be profitable to survive. We can't expect people to produce food for for our population for free. Um, That won't lead to a place that we like very much, I don't think. So, that that's kind of how we look at it i guess is is just trying to make things better over time
0: and i would really encourage anybody who has been listening up until this point who may have disagreed with some of the solutions or the you know the i guess the the logical conclusions that you came to from some of your perspectives earlier to to go back and listen to what you just said because i have never heard a contrary Vision of that for anyone working in either organic or regenerative agriculture, either. And there is a very, I would say, uneducated and even sometimes nasty perception from people who oppose what is happening in what we often call conventional or industrial agriculture that these people couldn't possibly care about the health of their soil or the ecologies of their farms. And I have never spoken to anybody working the land who would disagree with what you just said. And I would really encourage anyone who who has sort of a, a guttural reaction to, let's say, the use of fertilizers and pesticides or GMOs and so many other things that create emotional uh, reactions to to the way that people like you manage the land, to, to understand that you guys have the exact same motivations and vision for the future and that longer mindset that we are constantly trying to say is is unique to our perspective and it just isn't. Um, And so with that in mind, like, what are your metrics? What do you look to both in your business, on your land and in your own health and well-being, both for yourself, your family and your community to tell you whether you are on the right track, whether you're getting closer to that goal you just stated?
1: Hmm. That's a really good question, because uh, I would say that we're probably still figuring that out. Um, And I think we probably always will be, you know, the way that we measure our soil's health is is evolving like so many other things are right. Like I said earlier, we still don't exactly know what makes the soil healthy. So the way that I see it right now is, is basically as we're soil testing through the years, what's our organic matter doing? Is it staying flat? Is it going up? Is it going down, changing, increasing organic matter? People make the claim that it can happen in a few years, maybe in some countries, not here. It takes a long, long time to make significant differences, but, You know, I've taken on land that's been farmed really poorly, um, lots of it during my career. It hasn't been fertilized, hasn't been looked after. It takes about, I would say, probably five years of putting those inputs into it, growing continuous crops like crops year after year. Before you start to see that crop change, you'll start to see it produce far more with less fertilizer. Something in the soil is changing. Something is cycling as we're as we're growing crops more often with a, maybe a more diverse rotation, like I mentioned that we do grow. And honestly, as you know, as much as people maybe not may may disagree with this, putting those inputs in makes the soil more healthy because those microorganisms that live in the soil need certain elements to be there. If we mine those out and not replace them, it's harder for them to exist. So. Watching our soil tests to make sure that we're not decreasing, you know, like I mentioned, organic matter, but also all those nutrients that we test for every single year. You know, I mean, if you go back and look at your periodic table, I mean, those are the things that we're basically looking at every year. What are those elements doing? So, you know, right now, that's the way that we're sort of measuring our soil health. 20 years from now, it'll probably be something way more complex, and and probably something that takes into account all those various populations of microorganisms in there. We're just not there yet; we just don't know that quite yet. You know, on a on a more personal level, you know, my wife and I, we we want to raise kids that are productive members of society that that have good relationships, that are that are confident and and uh, conscientious men that look after their families and their, and their relationships and their friends and are good people to be around. You know, that's, that's how I've seen my, my dad and, and that's how I've seen my grand, my grandparents and, and uh, everyone else that, that I have a lot of respect for. They're just good people, you know, and it's hard to say like what exact things make kids into great people, but you know that's what we're trying to figure out i guess and, and hopefully we're able to do that with our family and and hopefully you know someday if the kids want to take over the farm because it it sure isn't going to be a requirement they can do whatever they want if they decide to um, i hope the values that we built in our operation today of leaving things better than we found them live on with them that's that's my hope
0: i love that and maybe even more specifically what do you see as the full potential for health and resilience for your farm business moving forward? I mean, you know, few few other industries like farming are so susceptible to what is happening in weather and climatic extremes to say nothing about all of the other outside influences that really dictate a lot of what is possible for you. Where would you like to move to, especially considering those ideas of of resilience and health, given the challenges that you face?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, you know, that's a good question, too. I mean, the two factors that control our income are basically out of our control, and that's market price and, and yield. We can do a lot to make them as best as we can, but we can't control the geopolitical environment. And we certainly can't control... The weather that we get, so we have to take what we have. So what we have to be able to do is to survive potentially multiple bad years in a row, which can happen. Um, you know, I, I've got friends out in Western Saskatchewan where it's been very dry for the past, well, better part of ten years, and um, you know, it takes a lot of strength, both financially and mentally, to make it through that. So. You know there's only so much you can do in terms of looking after your soils and everything else it still has to rain you know you can't get away from that and and that's that's usually our biggest question does did it rain and did it rain too much did it not rain enough you know did did the rain come down as hail or snow um so as far as how to you know, my vision for how we'll adapt to those things over time and what would be the best way to, you know, to thrive through all those things. A lot of it comes down to financial strength, having having enough cash flow to withstand those types of events. We've certainly seen lots of them. And um, the relationships that we have, I would say, are probably some of the most important things. The relationships that we have as a family, the relationships that we have with our employees, um, the, the relationships that we have with our suppliers, our lenders, our advisors. I mean, we're using all sorts of advisors and, and consultants to help us out in the business we're in today. It's those relationships that get you through the toughest times. It's when, you know, you're you're three years into a drought or a flood and you know you're wondering how you're gonna find enough money to put a crop in again and you go to your lender and you say, Look, this is our vision of where we wanna go. And we're going through some tough times right now, but we're going to get there. We just gotta get through this period that we're in right now. You need him to believe in you too, or her. You know, so that's a. Those are the types of relationships that get you through, and I think that's one of the most important jobs of a farmer today. As weird as it may sound, it's it's relationships.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. And of all of the things that we've talked about that have changed in farming since you were younger and since even further back, I think that is the most constant. And it's one of the things that I have been most attracted to in rural communities. And it's one of the reasons why I'm moving back out to one is because those interpersonal relationships and connections are intact in a way that I have just never found in larger cities and urban areas. And it's something that I think so many people crave in their lives, especially if they haven't had it for a while and that are really going to get us through many of the challenges that are inevitably going to come, whether you're involved directly with managing land or not. Um, And and so speaking of relationships, we talked about some of the antagonistic relationships that are currently happening between farmers in your situation, uh, government and regulators, as well as general opinion from from the public about what it is you do and how – you know, the industry should be regulated and how much say that it can actually have over how you make management decisions. Let's try and reimagine that for a second. What do you think or could envision would be a fruitful or beneficial relationship between farmers like yourself, people in legislative power, and perhaps even the general public? You know, one of the
1: Yeah, like one of the really positive things that's come out of all this in the past decade or so that people have become a lot more interested in agriculture is that people have become a lot more interested in agriculture. I mean, man, when I grew up, like nobody cared about farming. Farming was like that was the job that you did if you couldn't find anything else to do. When dad came back to the farm, the standard was that (laughs) all of the smart siblings left and went to school and the and this is his words, the dumbest one would come back and farm, you know. And I think that uh, I used to get so frustrated with people who just, they just thought agriculture was so backwards, you know. And it, it never was. But now we're finally starting to see people interested in finding out where their food comes from. And I think that's wonderful. Um, what I would like to see you know, from our legislators and uh, for people who want to be involved with agriculture and food production policy and, and all everything that goes along with that is come out here. You know, I, my, my website has my contact information on it. Come out to the farm, see it, see what it looks like, see what our machinery looks like, see what our crops look like, see our, you know, the fact that I live in the same yard as my mom and dad and my sister lives just down the road. I mean, we're we're family operations. I think what is it, 96% of farms in Canada are family-owned operations. I mean, it's it's going to be that way a long time. Um, and I I just wish I could have people come out here and I could I could show them why we do the things we do, and and how we think about raising our crops and our children and and our communities. I I think that people might be surprised at what they find if they uh if they came out and did that and and governments especially I, I think it would be really beneficial i mean if you grew up in in a in the downtown of a major city you might have no concept of of what a farm even really looks like aside from what you've read in a children's book right or a netflix documentary god forbid so you know <laughs> <laughs> come out here and visit and, and and let us show you what it really looks like
0: absolutely and Maybe even going a step further, people who want to get actively involved, certainly a first step would be to go and visit a farmer and see an operation. Do you see opportunities for people who maybe are not going to get into farming directly, but could be of help to the industry, of to farmers themselves directly, or even to you know increasing awareness and education in their communities?
1: Well, you know, we talked about the labor issue a little while ago, and I'm not saying that people need to come and work for farms. But uh, one of the biggest challenges that we have is just finding people to come run a combine for a couple of weeks. You know, like, really, it's a nice job. Uh, You can see the crop. You get to run a pretty awesome piece of machinery. Um, People want to help out and learn about agriculture. Harvest of any type of farm, whether it's what we're doing or whether it's a vegetable production Farm where you're actually physically pulling them out of the ground. I mean, all of that requires help. And you know that the thing is that most of our labor that we bring in for that is seasonal labor from out of country because people just aren't interested in doing that type of work anymore. You know, it's not because farmers are being cheap trying to get out of country labor. It believe me, it's expensive bringing people from somewhere else. Um, It would be really nice if there was more of an interest from you know, especially young people to come out uh, after school and, and stuff like that and help out. We could, we could certainly use it. And, you know, so that would be a way that people could get themselves involved. You know, one of the things that I, that I think has kind of gone away a little bit that might be coming back, but um, is even just backyard gardening. I mean, the amount that you learn about growing stuff from having a backyard garden is actually pretty tremendous. Um, You know, my wife has a garden and it's, uh it's a lot of work, but she really likes it and the kids get involved with it and everything else and we get to eat our own vegetables for about half the year that way and there's something to be said for that. So those are those would be a couple of things that I would that I would see that people could do to get a little bit more of a taste for what agriculture is actually like.
0: I love that. I do see that one coming back. In fact, that's a huge portion of my own audience are people who are trying to find their way back into working with the land, understanding growth cycles, seasons, and what, you know the nuances of what it means to grow food wherever it is that they live. Uh, increasingly, I've been connecting with people around here in Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, and other parts of Europe. Um, but, I mean, when I was farming back in Guatemala on a very small little goat dairy, Uh, I got more people reaching out and trying to understand what that looks like in an area that was mostly dedicated to coffee production and, you know, in working on farms in New Zealand and Australia as well. And, I mean, it looks very different through different types of industries, different sales models and production models, but there is so much to be said for the relationship with the earth that you will cultivate when you give it a try and actually learn what it means to... (laughs) to toil and try and make something edible come out of the ground um it's not easy as as much as it sounds and i think it, it really breeds a respect and an understanding for people who make their living that way and well, i would definitely encourage anyone to do it
1: you know there is something to be said about the relationship with the soil and and being it out in it and being out in the in the sun and you know one of the best times of the year on the farm is when we start Seeding. When we first pull a drill into the field for the first time, it's always stressful because there's always a thousand things that go wrong with the drill while it sits over winter, from all those electronics that I mentioned. But when you put that opener in the ground the first time and you smell that that fresh earth, you know there is there is something really special about that, and it's it's one of those it's one of those smells that just brings with it a a wealth of memory, and uh, I wish more people could experience that.
0: Indeed, well, look, Jake, you've already given me so much of your time, which I am incredibly appreciative of. I would love to continue this conversation. So what do you say we put a bookmark in it for now so I can leave you to your day. Um, but I would love to catch up again in the future and I look forward to you know, the questions and the follow up that people submit through this, but also would love to continue to hear your perception and follow your blog. as I have been doing up until now. There's some great ideas and a very valuable perspective in there as well. I encourage anybody to check it out and I'll put all the links for that in the show notes for this episode as well. So thank you again for making the time and I look forward to being in touch again real soon.
1: I really enjoyed speaking with you today and uh, it's really great to hear some different perspectives and and, uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. So I'd love to do it again sometime.
0: Thanks once again to Jake. I'll be posting the link to his blog on the show notes for this episode, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. Now, if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Well, that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast so you don't miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.